welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm going to shift to thinking about big questions about the 19th century. And I'm going to start with really probably one of the biggest questions of them all. If the story of the 18th century is a story of how Britain starts to become modern, then the story of the 19th century is usually how it capitalizes on its early modernity, how it grows rich, how it grows powerful, how it grows into an empire. I'm going to be talking about that today. The usual story sees Britain riding a wave of industrial revolution to financial and imperial power, only to start declining in the 1870s as Germany and America start the second industrial revolution with new kinds of processes, new kinds of industries around uh, chemicals and electricity, and new ways of making organizations. This story fits nicely with the tendency in the 20th century of Britain to de-industrialize. The big trend here is that throughout the 20th century, British heavy industry declines. It stops being important on the world stage, people lose their jobs, and the old centers of uh, mining and uh, iron making and cotton spinning uh, become the first rust belt. I want to look instead at a different narrative, one that looks at the continued importance of financial capitalism. Here, the financial world is created and is created centered on London, and this gives a small cadre of people and organizations advantages and information and allow them to profit off of the expanding net of global trade. This is what makes Britain rich and powerful. This is driven by the Industrial Revolution, but is not identified with it. Railroads, steamships, cotton mills, cheap labor, and cheap energy allow this financial capitalism to develop, but these uh, railroads, steamships, cotton mills, cheap labor, and cheap energy do not need to be in Britain for Britain to profit off of it. So in this episode, I'm going to go through each one of these things in turn. First, I'm going to discuss the narrative that sees the Industrial Revolution as in decline. Then I'm going to look at the story of financial capital in more detail. I'll first just tell you what I think it is. Then I'll talk about how it rose out of a crisis after the Napoleonic Wars of what to do with people and money. Then I'm going to explain how it latched on to free trade and the gold standard. Uh, before I'm going to just end with a caution that a lot of the stuff that we take as constitutive of the free trade free market is actually made consciously as the result of a political process. So the big story about the Industrial Revolution is that at least definitely starting in the 1820s, Britain starts to make a lot of money off of new ways of organizing labor and goods. These are the cotton mills that we've discussed so much, uh, the iron foundries, and the railroad. First railroad is built in 1830, and then there's a railroad boom in 1840. This makes Britain the first industrial nation, and Britain becomes rich by it. It crowds out the world's cotton production. 
It crowds out the world's iron production. And for a number of decades, Britain is just sitting easy. It has the secret sauce of modernity and it can just profit while everybody else catches up. But catch up they do. And the date that we usually talk about them catching up is the 1870s, particularly the 1873 Depression. Uh, this is caused by the weird fact that in really, really large factory capitalism like we have in Britain, there are particular points in time where it's economically rational to keep on producing goods, even though uh, each good costs more to produce than uh, it can get on the market. This is because it costs a lot to build factories and it costs a lot to get them started and so you can be in a position where you have to keep on producing even though there's a glut of overproduction on the market. The story goes that after the 1873 Great Depression, the, you know, the title of capitalism's most important economy shifts to America and Germany. It shifts to America and Germany because of two developments, because uh, they start to uh, do a lot of heavy research and development into the second industrial revolution, which we mean chemicals, uh, new ways of making steel and uh, electrical goods. And they do so in these really, really big companies. We can also think about uh, the 1870s as marking a moment of British uh, geopolitical decline as well, where you have Germany and the U.S. stepping forward on the political stage and new sorts of countries like Russia and Japan uh, starting to make claims for their importance. Now, there's three big reasons that historians have offered to explain why Britain doesn't succeed in the Second Industrial Revolution. The first is that the British people were not culturally adapted for the modern world. Their elites, instead of getting practical educations and plowing their money back into the business to get richer and richer, instead got their kids to uh, get educated in fancy private schools. Uh, where they learned the classics and became aristocrats. Instead of plowing their profits back into their companies, these elites instead bought, brought, bought country houses and tried to be, you know, old landed aristocracy. And because of this, they weren't paying attention to the learned scientific engineering heavy second industrial revolution. The second reason people offer is that they resist innovations in management. Whereas uh, Germany and the United States start to develop these really big companies that can uh, really leverage the economies of scale and scope that the railway and the steamship and the uh, coal station open up. Instead, British organizations remain relatively small uh, and they resist particular innovations in management like scientific management, Taylorism. This is in part, again, because of education. There are relatively few engineers in Britain, um, and these engineers usually uh, were learning their craft on the job. Uh, there was not any concrete, formal method of engineering education. And this is important because the trained managers who actually run large businesses often came from engineers. Uh, another reason that's offered is that working class organization made the shop floor harder to manage. And so people like to keep more like paternalistic, medium-sized organizations where everybody could know one another. 
Um, another reason uh, that's offered is that British industry relied on the cotton sector. And even though cotton was the first industry to industrialize fully, it actually isn't that great to uh, profit off of the economies of scale and scope because you can only make the machines run that much faster. There's a limit to their growth, unlike uh, chemical firms and uh, large uh, uh, food products or stuff like that. Finally, the third uh, reason that's offered for British uh, industrial decline is that the economic development of the 19th century is crowded out by empire. The idea is that people aren't investing in British industry because there are tons more investments available overseas, uh, especially sure bets like railroads. And this means that the money that would have otherwise gone to propping up British business and maybe starting the second industrial revolution is instead invested in getting other countries to do their first industrial revolution. And the ambitious young men who might have otherwise become engineers and started companies of their own instead go off and uh, play the game of imperialism. But I don't think that that's the whole story because British people at the time did not think that their industry was declining. They saw the writing on the wall. They knew that Germany and America were going to be important, but they did not think that what they were doing was doomed. And we have to think about why they didn't think this. Well, first is that only certain kinds of industry benefit from the really large kind of uh, capitalist management that American industry and German industry uh, eventually chose. Other kinds of industries, uh, specifically for uh, uh, things that change more often, are much better at medium-sized firms that don't use huge capital outlays and instead use highly trained, uh, educated staff. And also, this story leaves out the special sauce of British capitalism, and that is the financial sector. We have to think about 19th century services. The real centers of the economy in the 19th century is not industry. It's what we might call fire, finance, insurance, real estate, and also transportation. These are the profit centers of British Empire. These are where Britain continues to keep its comparative advantage even well into the 20th century. And these are also what British uh, uh, money is made from now. When you go to the city of London, people are not buying cotton mills, but people are uh, making money from finance, insurance, real estate, and to a lesser extent, transportation. So part of this story is the alliance between the landed interest and the moneyed interest and the eventual coming out ahead of the financial interest, the moneyed interest. One of the reasons why is that unlike, you know, the industry that we usually think of as the generator of British wealth, finance capitalism allowed people to work but to still be gentlemen. You could be a banker and live in London and work for like three or four hours a day, never get your hands dirty, and be mostly spend your time at work being chummy with your friends. And we can think of this sociologically as particular kinds of elites uh, maintaining their 
uh, supremacy through their privileged access to information, social, and cultural networks. The bankers were good bankers, not because they were great at math, but because they were in privileged positions in the network of global capitalism. So let's now talk about how that network of global capitalism came to be cited in London. The big moment is 1815, the end of the Napoleonic Wars. I've told a story before of how in the 18th century you get the development of the giant pool of money. People who are used to being able to invest their money in alienable assets that provide strict rates of returns. The number one asset was the Bank of England bond, the government bond. In 1815 was the height of government debt. It was at 700 million pounds. Interest payments took up 50% of government expenditure. This was half of the entire volume of all exports. It was huge. And people were worried. There was a, a great moral panic about who the country was actually working for. Because that means that 50% of all taxes that people paid were going not to do the things that the nation was supposed to do, but instead was going to pay off the nation's creditors. There was a new kind of conservative reform that pushed to, uh, you know, destroy what they called the thing, this corrupt, rentier class who made money only because they owned the debt of the government. And this is not a quiet process. There were riots. There were machine breakings. There were people clamoring for more reform than other people wanted. This was an uncomfortable time. And the solution was to shift government away from its tax and spend mentality and move it towards one that offered fiscal conservatism, that said, we're going to pay down the debt. We are no longer going to uh, continue to spend our way into modernity. But as the debt in, uh, decreased after 1815, and as the government stopped paying high interest rates, there was a problem. Where was this money to go? And the solution was to invest overseas, to invest in the debt of other countries, and to invest in railways that were highly capitally uh, hungry. And so let's jump to the 1850s when this really shifts, when the balance of power shifts. We can see this through the development of free trade. Between 1850 and 1827, the tariff is about 70%. Uh, in 1841, it was reduced to 50%. In 1845, it was reduced again to 19%. And in 1846, you got generally free trade and repeal of the uh, most egregious tariff on the Corn Laws. And so in here, we can see the triumph of a new kind of capitalism. A new moral order based on minimal government of ho at home, paternalism abroad, indirect taxes, and the sanctification of consumption. Here we get the beginning of a trading system 
based in London, financed by short-term credits drawn on London banks and long-term loans to foreign governments and direct investments that's tied together with world trade, world specialization of production, low transaction costs, and the gold standard. This led to a huge boom in financial services and other kinds of services in London. Take shipping. Shipping was invisible income that Britain just sucked up out of the global economy. Um, in 1860, British ships took 26% of the world's steam tonnage. In 1890, British ships took 60% of the world's tonnage. This was down to 40% in 1914. Remember, Britain is a tiny island that has, you know, not as much population as America or Germany or France or any of these other countries, and it is dominating world transport. Britain also becomes the center of the world stock trade. In 1867, there was a first uh, uh, a printing of the daily stock and share list, and it had only 835 securities, which is still a ton more than the three that were traded in 1700. In 1914, this had risen to 4,500. Uh, the number of people owning them went from 250,000, a quarter of a million in 1870, to 1 million in 1914. People started to invest overseas. Uh, this was from 7% of national wealth in 1850 to 14% of all national wealth in 1870 to nearly a third in 1913. In 1914, half of all of British savings were invested abroad. So here we get the, a new kind of financial system where British people are making money off of finance, insurance, transport, uh, investments. And this is not necessarily connected with industrial capitalism. This is how Britain's getting rich. This is how it is funding everything over the long term. But we have to point out two things. The first is that this is actually very small. There are few people in London, in a square mile of this small city, who are actually benefiting from this situation. The second is that this sort of situation is not inevitable. It was not something that happened just because Britain, you know, let its hands off of the market and let capitalism work. Instead, capitalism was created in the 19th century. The free market was created by a number of conscious decisions. Uh, for example, um, we, we often talk about this as the rise of the incorporated limited liability company. But that sort of, of, of organizational uh, 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 development wasn't made for the purposes of efficiency. It wasn't made because they were better off at getting more money. It was made because it was a way of helping people not be legally liable for what their companies did. So to recap, there's two big ways that we can see the 19th century uh, as profiting Britain. The first is from international trade of material stuff. And the second is through domination of the world economy. And of these two, I think that the really important one was domination of the world economy, that Britain was able to set what the market was because it was the first mover, and it did so in a way that benefited London financial merchants. 
this was always on the back of industrial capitalism. This could not have happened if you did not have the investment opportunities of early industrialization, of factories and steamships and uh, uh, the railway. But it was independent of it, which is why when British capitalism had to make a choice between whether it should protect its local industry and protect its finance in 1914, it chose finance. And that is why, even today, Britain does not so much make stuff as it does lend other countries money. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tell a friend, tweet me a question at at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. Uh, thanks to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. I'll speak to you guys this afternoon about, uh, I think, um, technologies of distance.